Well, good morning. If you don't mind, I'd just like to start off with a word of prayer. So God, we come to you now. We are wholly yours. God, I pray that, that we would make ourselves available to you, to what you would speak in this moment. So God, would you speak through me? Um, may we hear only your voice. Um, God, I also just wanna pray for our brothers and sisters across town at First Christian Newburgh uh, for no reason other than uh, you laid them on my heart this morning. So pray for my friend Alex leading worship there. And God, we just want to see your kingdom expanding, um, not only here in this congregation, but in congregations all across our community. So God, thank you for your love. And uh, this time is yours. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. So uh, like Aslan said, we're, today we're finishing up our series called Pray Like Jesus, where we're trying to answer the question, what does it look like to pray like Jesus prayed? If we believe that we exist to live and love like Jesus, we should make an effort to learn how to pray like Jesus. And today specifically, we wanna focus in on an idea called simple prayer. Simple prayer. We, we've looked at the Lord's Prayer uh, in Matthew chapter six, and it's, it's been an important time for us to be able to just look at how Jesus taught his disciples to pray. But there's something that struck me about the Lord's Prayer this week, and that is how simple it is. I mean, Jesus is somebody who was known for staying up all night to pray. And yet, when his disciples asked him, how should we pray? His response was not a dissertation. It was something that you could memorize and recite in about 30 seconds. I don't wanna give the impression that Jesus is saying that when you pray, these are the words you have to use. Now, Jesus wasn't teaching his disciples necessarily what to pray specifically, but also how to pray. It doesn't have to be these long, fancy prayers. Jesus says, when you pray, pray like this. Now, I think we get the impression from that, uh, from the two verses that precede the Lord's Prayer in Matthew chapter six. So that's where we're gonna spend most of our time. But I think to kind of help uh, make this foggy idea of simple prayer a little bit more concrete and practical, I just wanna define it like this. Simple prayer is everyday life lived with God. Everyday life lived with God. So, uh, like I said, uh, we're gonna look at the, some of the context uh, just preceding the Lord's Prayer in Matthew chapter six. And uh, I think what's important about these verses, um, we're gonna read verses six, uh, chapter six, verses seven and eight. And Jesus is really trying to help, I think it helps me understand what simple prayer is not. These first couple of verses, I think, shine a good light on that because I think we all know uh, people in our lives, or maybe you've just encountered somebody who prays long, big, beautiful, eloquent prayers. And oftentimes we find ourselves thinking like, well, that's great for them, but I can't pray like that. Like I'm not that kind of Christian or believer or whatever. That's, that's something they do, but not for me. But I think Jesus has some interesting words to say in response. He says in verse seven, when you pray, don't keep on babbling like pagans for they think they will be heard because of their many words. So not only do you have permission not to pray long, lengthy, eloquent prayers, but it seems that Jesus would almost instruct us to practice this. That's not to say that there's anything wrong with long prayers. Some of the godliest people I know are people that pray really, really long prayers, kind of that are like when you're praying before a meal and you're like, is the food gonna get cold? But it's not a bad thing, right? There's nothing wrong with that. But I think even if you just back up a little bit further in this book or in this chapter, you can see in verse one, Jesus what Jesus is doing is he's trying to paint a picture that we shouldn't do good things to be noticed by it, to be noticed by other people. Jesus is doing something that he's very, very known for doing, which is 
bringing it not uh, past the actions, like what you're actually doing and bringing it down to the heart, the core motivation. So there's nothing wrong with lengthy prayers unless the core motivation is to be noticed by everybody around you. I think there's another reason why pagans would pray such long, lengthy prayers, and it was because they believed that the gods could be impressed and kind of wooed into blessing them. So they would often try and do good things or try and pray fancy prayers so that the gods would get their attention and that they would be able to be blessed by their gods. But, but that's not how the God of the Bible works. It sounds like a bit of a primitive idea. Like for ancient people, yeah, trying to impress God with your prayers, like that, that makes sense, but but not for us, right? But how often do we pray like that's the case? I mean, I think oftentimes we have this picture of God standing up in heaven going, mm, boy, Bob's prayer was pretty underwhelming there. But Nancy, she really brought her A game, so I think she's gonna get a yes on what she's asking for. I mean, if we're honest, sometimes we pray like pagans. So Jesus says in verse eight, he says, don't be like them, don't be like the pagans. For your father knows what you need before you ask him. Do you hear that? God, our Father, already knows what we need. I think I, I've skirted past this verse too many times, and I think we just have to stop and acknowledge that's a really big deal. Like, that's a huge deal to acknowledge the fact that God already knows what we need. I think it causes me to ask a few important questions. I think there's some solid implications that come from this idea. The first implication is there is way less pre pressure to pray the right thing. I think one of the biggest debilitating barriers to, to a life of prayer is this pressure that I have to have everything just right before I can pray it. We think like, well, I, I don't know if I should be asking for that thing, or it seems kind of selfish to ask God for that, or why would I wanna waste God's time with something so small, or I'm, I'm much too angry to come to God in prayer, I might say a bad word, or I don't know if, like this isn't something I can bring to the Lord, or surely God doesn't wanna be wasted, his time shouldn't be wasted with something like fill in the blank, but, but God is less concerned about what we're asking for. He just, he wants us to ask. Remember, God is a real person with whom we are to have a real relationship. If we wait for everything to be just right before bringing our hearts before the Lord, the fact is there, there's going to be a barrier. We're never going to get anywhere in building that relationship with him. The reality is our prayers are always going to come with this kind of mixed bag of, of motives, but I like how Richard Foster illustrates this in his book on prayer. Uh, Richard Foster says, God is big enough to receive us with all our mixture. We don't have to be bright or pure or filled with faith or anything. That is what grace means. And, and not only are we saved by grace, we live by it as well. And we pray by it. We pray by grace. So I think it lets a lot of pressure off to have to pray the right things. The second thing, uh, the implication that I think is important to note here is to ask the question, if God already knows what we need, why are we praying in the first place? That's a decent question, right? Like why, why are we supposed to bring these needs to God if he already knows what we need? I think this is such an important question that I thought we'd just carve out a little bit of time for you to, to ponder that this morning. So what we're gonna do is we're just gonna give 90 seconds for you to maybe talk about this with the people that you came with, or if you're here by yourself, you can just think about it. You can pull out a journal and write some thoughts down, but I want you to try and come up with your answer to the question, if God already knows what we need, why are we praying to him? So let's take some time and do that now.
All right, so what do we think? Why is it so important that we pray to God if he already knows what we need? I think if we're honest, there's a few good answers to this question. I had a, some, some people share with me before uh, this service just kind of what their thoughts were uh, on this answer. And I think there's a few important things, but I think a really, really important one that I wanna hit on today is that God wants a relationship with you. Like this is what you do when you build a relationship. I mean, those of you that are married or even those of you that have family members or close friends that you would say that you love them, right? Can you imagine living in a relationship where you never told your spouse or your family member, or your close friend that you love them? What if you, what if you operated under the impression that they don't need to hear me say that. They know that I love them. They don't actually need to hear me say it. Why is it important to tell your loved ones that you love them? Because, because you have a relationship with them. It fosters that relationship. And our relationship with the Lord is no different. I think, I think the barrier that, that many of us feel when it comes to prayer is we have this wrong impression of God. We, we view God as, as a deist God. Do you know what deism is? It, it has the concept that God is, is somebody who set the world in motion and then walked away. Like you talk about like God as like the divine clockmaker. Like he made this intricate clock and then turned it on and it started ticking and he leaves it just to watch it tick away. But that's not the God of the Bible. Like we serve a God and we, we study and we learn about a God who wants an intimate relationship. He wants to be involved. He has a plan and he wants you to be a part of it. He's not a deist God. He's also not a God that, that we have to try and like stoke the fires to be able to get his attention, to be able to get his blessing. No, God, God is not that kind of God. You have a captive audience with the king of the universe. We like to think that we have to go out and impress him or convince him to, to bring his presence into our presence. But the fact is, we forget that, that God pursues our presence. He's not waiting for us to come and pursue his. No, God is pursuing our presence. And we'll talk about that more a little bit later. But I just wanna, wanna ask, what if God actually loves you? Like actually cares about you? What if God actually wants to be involved like, like we say that he does? Again, these are all words and ideas that, that we say all the time, but I just don't, I don't believe that I have operated like that's true. What if, God, what if God actually wants you to partner with him in his mission to bring his kingdom on earth as in heaven? I don't say this to, to make you feel guilty for not praying enough. That's the opposite of what I wanna do. What I want is for you to feel the invitation to enter into this life with God. Remember, simple prayer is just, it's everyday life with God. I want you to feel like, like God not only loves you, but, but he actually likes you. Like he wants to be with you. Like he wants you to present your needs to him even though he already knows what they are. He wants to live everyday life with you. So don't pray like the pagans. No, they use, they use big fancy prayers to impress the people around them. Don't pray like them, Jesus says. Instead, pray like this. Our Father in heaven. You see, it's so simple. It's, it's succinct. It's to the point. It's praying to your Father who already knows what you need and then trusting that he cares enough to care for you. I think, honestly, these types of simple prayers, they, they can be hard. 
And I think uh, there has to be some kind of relational equity to be able to pray these types of simple prayers. It, it's almost like being in uh, a new friendship. Have you ever tried to make a new friend? So something adults are notoriously bad at, but kids, they can just do it, right? My kids crack me up with how they can make friends, but it's kind of hard for me to be able to engage with somebody that I don't know because there's no relationship there. Or I don't know if you've ever been set up on a blind date. I haven't, but I can imagine that when your friend tells you, oh no, you would hit it off with this person. You just sit down over dinner. The, the conversation, it's awkward and it's clumsy and you're trying to find something to grab onto with uh, some common interest maybe. But the fact is it can be difficult until you find a common interest. And then maybe you hang out again a couple of times and you start to realize, oh, we do have a lot in common. All of a sudden it's not forced, it's not clumsy because there's a relationship there. Praying simple, straightforward, conversational prayers with the Lord, I think it also requires a lot of trust. Trust that God can handle whatever it is that you bring to him. Trust that, that he actually cares Dave Hickman, in, in his book, Closer Than Close, he says that simple prayer is it's more about who we're praying to than what we're saying. It's about trusting in who God is rather than trying to convince God with our many words. You see, if God is who he says he is, then we can be honest, straightforward, and vulnerable with him. See, once we're able to turn that corner and kind of demystify conversation with the Almighty, we start to find that a life of prayer, that living everyday life with God is very normal. Okay, I have an important question to ask. I've, I've preached up here a few times, but I've never actually asked this question. Does anybody out here watch The Office? Two, raise your hands high. That's more like it. Okay, it's the most streamed show on, on streaming services in history. So you're either keeping your hand down or you're lying. Okay, so the point is, uh, there's a really compelling illustration that comes out of one of the subplots from The Office. There's uh, the love interest, which is Jim and Pam. They find themselves separated. Pam has to go away to New York for art school and Jim is stuck in Scranton. And they're trying to figure out how this engaged relationship works being so far apart. So they have this idea. Their idea is to buy what Dwight identifies as the Matsuhashi V400, the world's tiniest Bluetooth. You guys know what I'm talking about. They put it in their ear and they spend their entire day on a phone call together. Pam says the company has a policy against eight hour personal calls. So they have this tiny Bluetooth speaker hidden in their ear and they spend the whole day together. Now, those of you that have seen the episode, are they, are they talking to each other the whole time? No. No, for them, they're trying to keep it a secret. So they're not talking to each other outright, but, but Pam overhears Jim pranking Dwight. And Jim overhears Pam humming a song. And then every once in a while, they steal away and they actually do get to acknowledge one another. They say something to one another. But the whole day, they are just together. I think simple prayer operates a lot in the same way. You see, we don't have to be filling our time with talking to God to be able to operate out of a life lived with God. And then there are gonna be moments where it makes sense to, to speak to him because he's just with you all the time. This is what simple prayer is. It's everyday life lived with God. God blessed me this week with an opportunity to decide if I believed what I was speaking about. I had a brilliant idea. My family and I, uh, we have a minivan that unfortunately broke. The sliding, the sliding door on the driver's side 
just won't shut. Like it gets stuck halfway through. And so like I drove it home the other day with the door wide open and decided to finally take it to the mechanic after we got our appointment scheduled and had to jump it because the door has been open for a week and it died. So we had to jump it to get it there. We got it there. They said they couldn't fix it. They said you have to take it to a dealer. And so we had to jump it to try and get it home. So my family takes me, helps me jump the car. They leave and I'm trying to figure out what do we do now? So I had an idea. Anybody would have done it. So give me some grace on this. My idea was if we can just get the door closed, we can not have to jump it, right? Because the battery's not gonna die. We can park it anywhere else. We don't have to be under the cover of our garage. We can park it outside. We can even drive it and just not use the door until we're able to get it fixed. So like, man, if I can just get that door closed, we're gonna solve a lot of problems. So how would you close a door that's jammed when you're driving at home? You slam on the brakes. There's no cars around. Like I was trying to be safe. I'm going not fast. I was going maybe 20, 25 miles an hour and I hit the brakes. The door comes, it hits the end where it doesn't come any further and shatters the glass window behind it. I wish I had a camera on my body language at that moment because I'm sure it looked like this. So I'm driving home after I call my wife just to give her a heads up on what she's gonna see pull into the driveway. And I'm, uh, the wind is whipping through the van, as you could imagine, because the door's halfway open, the window's shattered, and I'm just trying to figure out what is going on. And then it hits me like, Jeremy, do you believe that God is with you in this moment? Like, I'm gonna have to talk about this this weekend. <laughs> so do I believe what I'm talking about? And I can't say that it made everything better. Like it didn't make all of the, all of the frustration go away, but there was a pivotal shift in my perspective once I realized that God is in this with me. Like literally God is right here in the van with me. I realize, man, we are missing out when we don't operate out of that truth. God is with us. There's a man that was born by the name of Nicholas Herman, but you might know him better by the name of Brother Lawrence. Brother Lawrence had a way of approaching this kind of relationship with the Lord in a way unlike anybody that I've ever heard of. He was actually a really normal guy. There was nothing particularly special about him. He was born in the 17th century in France and he served in the war and he found himself one day under a tree where he had an encounter with the Lord that led him to become a monk. So he moved into a monastery and the job that he was given in this monastery was in the kitchen. It was cooking, it was doing dishes and cleaning. The problem was, this job kept him so busy that he had to miss a lot of the set prayers that happen in a monastery. Usually every three to six hours, there's a bell that rings and people go to pray, but Brother Lawrence, he was too busy. He wasn't able to go in those moments. So he kind of had a choice to make. Either he tries to like stressfully get his job done so that he can go to these prayers and encounter the Lord's presence there, or he invites the Lord's presence into his normal everyday life. Cooking meals, doing the dishes, and cleaning the kitchen. That's what he did. He calls this idea the practice of the presence of God. And it's actually what he's known for. In the 17th century, people came traveling for miles and miles and miles just to spend time with this monk as he fried eggs and scrubbed pans with God. You could read all about it in this tiny little book uh, called The Practice of the Presence of God. And it's not a book that he wrote. He was much too humble to think that he had anything to say, but, but one of his students recorded a lot of their conversations and interactions. And one of the things that he recorded Brother Lawrence as saying is, 
I have stopped practicing all forms of devotion and set prayers, except those which I'm obliged to participate in. I make it my practice only to persevere in his holy presence. I do this simply by paying attention to and directing my affection to God. I call this the actual presence of God. It is a habitual, silent, and secret communion with the soul of God. I misspoke there, of the soul with God. I think, I think Brother Lawrence got it. Like he understood what it meant to live everyday life with God. Now remember, Brother Lawrence, he was a remarkable man with a remarkable depth of intimacy with God. And I don't, I don't think anybody is expecting you or me to live like Brother Lawrence starting today. But what I wanted to illustrate was that even for a monk, his most intimate moments of connection with God didn't happen at the set prayers. It didn't even happen in the Holy Communion. That's something that he spoke about. No, it happened in his normal everyday life lived with God. So what would that look like for you? Like, what would it look like if you took God on that sales call with you this week? What if, what if the Lord was with you when you make breakfast for your kids tomorrow morning? Or maybe you, you're a plumber who's gonna go fix some leaky pipes with God, or what would it look like to fill out expense reports knowing Jesus is right there with you? I think... I think it'd be a game changer to be able to administer chemotherapy to somebody knowing God is intimately with you in that moment. Or what if you're receiving chemotherapy? God is with you. He wants you to be aware of that. Now, I'll be honest, in my opinion, simple prayer or everyday life lived with God, it's a challenge. Like, it's strangely difficult. I'm trying to think through, like, why that is. I think there's... There's distractions happening in our culture, but I'm, I'm 33 years old and I've been a believer all of my life. And this is just now something that I'm not figured out by any means, but just starting to have like language to be able to describe or to start being able to wrap my mind around what this means. But it, it's strangely difficult. I think a lot of it has to do with, with being a post-enlightenment Westerner who's trying to figure out how do I have a relationship with this being that I can't see with my eyes. I can't hear with my ears, or I can't measure empirically with data. That makes it challenging. So if you're anything like me, and just kind of like getting started to see what this looks like, I just wanna give like two little reminders to keep in mind as we embark on this journey together. The first is to expect the ordinary and unremarkable. Now, don't misunderstand me. What I'm not saying is that, that God won't meet you in extraordinary and remarkable ways, because I actually, I believe that he will. But when we expect something, we're actually, we're trying to impress a formula upon the Lord. But remember, this is a real relationship. And real relationships, they don't follow formulas. I think sometimes we can be distracted by wanting this, this exotic experience with the Lord. And it might actually distract us or detract us from the ultimate goal, which is life lived with God. So expect the ordinary and unremarkable. Second, I would just say, give yourself a lot of grace. Give yourself lots of grace because God is giving you lots of grace. 
God's not expecting a, a Brother Lawrence type of relationship with you starting today. No, God just wants you to be able to turn your affection to him as often as you can. So I would encourage you to give this everything you have. And when, when you're out of, of the ability to give any more, let that be enough. I love what Dom Chapman says. He says, to pray as you can, not as you can't. God's gonna be thrilled with whatever attention you're able to give him and his grace covers the rest. Before long, you'll start to find that that all of your relationships, the people around you start to look different. You'll start to find yourself being transformed into the likeness of Jesus because that's what his presence does. So what I wanna end with now are are two foundational ideas that I think will help us bridge the barrier between where we find ourselves today and an everyday life lived with God. The first is just to understand that we were designed for the presence of God. We were created for the presence of God. In the very beginning, humans lived fully in God's presence. They lived in the garden and and walked with God in the cool of the day. But what happened? Humans broke God's good design by trying to to define good and bad or right and wrong on their own. And so God, in his grace, in his love, he ushered humans out of the garden. He knew his holy presence would destroy us in our sin. So in his mercy, he sent us away. And then from that point on, God started doing everything that he could to be back in the presence of his people. So he came down with fire and smoke onto a mountain and invited the nation of Israel up for this beautiful covenant ceremony. But they wouldn't come. They were terrified. So they sent Moses instead as a representative. So God takes what he can get. And he's dwelling in the temple at a point a few hundred years later on. God's dwelling in the temple But the problem is Israel chose rebellion. They chose exile instead of living faithfully with God. So even that presence of God was rejected. You fast forward a few hundred years and God does the unthinkable. He becomes one of us. He takes his beautiful, holy presence and he crams it into this finite, fleshy experience called Jesus. And surely this, surely this is as close as we can get to the Lord, right? This is, this is Jesus. He's a man here with us in our presence. But we rejected his righteousness. We couldn't stand his perfection, so, so we killed him the best way that we knew how. This God, he just doesn't give up. He keeps coming. And all of a sudden, the, the holy perfection that was crammed into this human named Jesus explodes out as Jesus raises back to life. And all of a sudden, his Holy Spirit comes in power and it turns this ragtag group of Jews into the church. And all of a sudden, the fire that came down on the mountain is now dwelling on the heads of his people. It wasn't enough for God to be with his people. He wanted to be in them. He wanted to be one with them. We were created for the presence of God. Secondly, we are as followers of Jesus, one with God. Think back to our study through the book of John. Actually, I would just encourage you to go back and read chapters 14 through 17. It'll take you about 15 minutes. 
And honestly, there's gonna be kind of a dizzying intellect as Jesus tries to put into human terms something that is spectacularly divine. That is that the fullness of God is dwelling within this man, Jesus, who now is dwelling within his people. But we are also found in Christ and one with the Father. It'll make your head spin a little bit, but what you need to understand is that you are inseparably joined with God. If you call yourself one with Christ, you are one with God, the Father. See, if we believe the lie that we are praying to a God who's standing up in heaven with his arms folded, trying to decide if we deserve to have our prayers answered, the fact is we're praying to an idol. The God of the Bible, he doesn't need need us to try and earn his attention or affection. Like I said before, we have a captive audience with God. We have to understand that the one true God put everything on the line so that he could be with us, so that he could be with his people, so that he could live normal, everyday life with us. Because like I said, that's where it all started. That's where it all is going. It's what heaven is. It's the fullness of the presence of God. So the question for us then is, are we willing to invite him into our everyday lives? The Bible shows us that God is much too polite to force his presence on us. No, it actually paints a picture of Jesus standing at a door and knocks. He's just waiting to be invited in. So if you are a believer, I would challenge you to invite God into your everyday life. Live life with him. If today you feel a little bit more like you're on the outside looking in, and you would say, no, I'm not a believer, but maybe you're interested. Maybe that has perked your interest and you want to know more about that. The invitation is the same. It's for anybody. After the service today, if that's you, like you can find me, you can find anybody with a red lanyard. You can stay seated after we dismiss and someone will come find you. We'd love to talk to you about what that looks like. You see, prayer is not an obligation. No, prayer is an invitation into the loving embrace of an everyday life lived with God, the fullness of joy, living life with God. So each week we, we have a chance to remember this story that I've laid out for you, what Jesus has done, like the, the lengths that God would go to to be with his people. We call it the Lord's Supper. In the past, we've, we've called this idea communion, which can tend to be a little bit of a misnomer because communion is not something you eat and drink, right? Like we said, communion is, is life lived with God. It's the oneness with God that we experience all the time. The Lord's Supper, however, this is our chance to remember that union, to remember the reality of who God is and what he's done for us. So go ahead and get what, uh, the communion that you walked in with. You can bring that. Um, I'm just gonna pray give us the chance to remember his sacrifice as we take the Lord's Supper together. God, we rest in you. We rest in what you've done. We give our lives wholly to you. That means, that means even the mundane parts, like the little things. God, we invite you in. We just acknowledge as we take the bread and the juice that you are a God who has given everything to be with his people. 
So God, may today be a day where we stop running, where we invite you in. God, we love you. We make ourselves available to you. It's in Jesus' name we pray.